The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good morning. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing how to navigate significant acquisitions in Rule 305. To help with this discussion, we have Jana Gregory, a director in Embark's financial accounting practice. Adam, Jana, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Glad thanks to be for, here. Jana, welcome us. back. Thank you. I'm glad to be here again <laughs> in person. It's been a minute since you've been here. <laughs> yes. So we're glad to have you back. Well, Adam, let's go ahead and get things kicked off with you by asking the obvious question. What exactly does Rule 3-05 mean? Yeah, so the SEC's Regulation X Rule 305 is the rule that essentially governs the financial statement requirements of significant acquired or to-be-acquired businesses by SEC registrants. So when an SEC registrant and the acquirer in the transaction acquires a business, this rule essentially decides like what types of financial statements, how many financial statements need to be provided for that acquired business. Um, we'll get a bit more into it later today, but essentially the information about that acquired business is provided on Form um, 8K, or it's provided as part of the acquirer's registration statement or proxy statement, depending on the circumstances there. Okay. And Adam, what was the intent for even the SEC having this rule put in place? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very similar to a lot of SEC rules. So it's really to ensure that investors and stockholders have the relevant information timely about a registrant's key activities. So if a company is going to acquire a business that's significant to their current operations, you know, investors and other users of the financial statements are going, you know, they want to understand like how that business uh, might impact the registrant itself and then kind of what has been the historical performance of that acquired business. And so Rule 305 provides uh, some of that context by requiring certain financial statements for those significant acquired businesses. Okay. And then, I, Adam, I'm sure that there's important factors or considerations that companies need to think through when applying Rule 3-05. Any of those that you want to touch on? Yeah. So the first thing you need to think through is more or less whether you've actually acquired or there is a to-be-acquired business that meets the SEC's definition of a business. And so that that's a key component there because Rule 305 only applies to acquired businesses. So if a transaction does not satisfy the SEC's definition of a business, then you wouldn't apply Rule 305 to that transaction. Um, it's important to know that there is also a definition of business under U.S. GAAP. Um, so in ASC 805, there is specific criteria to determine whether an acquisition is a business uh, under U.S. GAAP, but the two definitions don't align, um, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, so there could be some disparity there between uh, the assessment that's performed under U.S. GAAP versus the SEC rule when you're thinking about whether or not the transaction uh, constitutes a business. Okay. Jen, I want to flip over to you now. Talk to me a little bit about what the SEC's definition of a business actually focuses on. Sure. So the SEC's definition of a business really focuses on whether the nature of the acquiree's 
revenue-producing activities remains the same before and after the acquisition. So if there's sufficient continuity of the acquiree's operations before and after the acquisition, then the acquired business's historical historical financial information is presumably indicative of future results and future operations, and therefore investors in the acquirer are going to want to know that financial information about the acquiree. Okay. You know, Janet, how challenging is it for registrants to evaluate this definition of a business, especially since it doesn't align with U.S. GAAP, the U.S. GAAP definition? Yeah, so this assessment can sometimes be difficult and nuanced, especially if that U.S. GAAP conclusion was that the was that the acquisition was an asset acquisition, kind of like Adam was mentioning. Um, and just as a reminder, an acquisition is an asset acquisition under U.S. GAAP when substantially all of the fair value of the, of the assets acquired is concentrated in a single identifiable asset or a group of similar identifiable assets. Um, but when kind of when you get over to the SEC evaluation, so the SEC definition of a business, luckily there are some factors and attributes to consider when evaluating that sufficient continuity question. Um, those factors are whether the entity will retain any employees or a sales force as part of the acquisition. Um, also, the retention and continuity of the acquiree's customer base, trade names, production techniques, operating rights and processes, their market distribution system, sort of all of the things that comprise how a business does what it does. So it, basically, if there are substantial changes to enough of these factors, then you might get to a position where you're saying there's actually not sufficient continuity of those operations, and then therefore it would be considered an asset acquisition for SEC reporting purposes. Okay, so Jenna, would you say it's more or less likely that an acquisition meets the definition of a business for SEC reporting purposes versus U.S. GAAP under ASC 805? Um, I would say that if the definition, if sorry, if the acquisition meets the definition of a business under ASC 805, it most likely meets the SEC's definition of a business. I wouldn't expect there's a lot of situations where um, an acquirer acquires a business that's determined to be a business com combination under U.S. GAAP, and then you get to the SEC evaluation and it no longer represents a business. I think the disparity is more common in the situation where you have an asset acquisition um, under U.S. GAAP, and then you get to that SEC evaluation and you're essentially seeing that there actually is sufficient continuity of operations. Yep. Okay. Adam, want to come back over to you. What yep. else do companies need to consider when applying Rule 305? Yeah. So once a company's determined whether or not the transaction uh, represents a business under the SEC's definition, the next step is really kind of looking at the significance of that acquisition. So there's three tests that are outlined in the in the SEC rules to that must be performed in order to set assess the significance of the acquisition. And you want to obviously perform all three, but then you kind of look at which one yields the highest significance level. Um, and that'll be used to make the determination of the level of significance. Um, so you'll often hear these referred to in practice as kind of the 305 significance tests. Yeah. And Adam, I'm sure we're going to touch on some of the specifics of the three tests, but before doing so, what's the purpose of measuring significance? Yeah, so the conclusion on significance is essentially going to drive the number of annual and interim financial statement periods. So, you know, basically the effort you need to put in and getting financial statements of the acquired business uh, submitted to the SEC. So to no one's surprise, the more significant your acquisition is, you know, the more historical periods that'll be required under the rule. Okay, that's helpful. So what are the three tests that need to be performed to assess significance? 
Yeah, so the three tests are broadly referred to as the investment test, the asset test, and the income test. And I'll be transparent, they all have their complexities and nuances, and we could probably devote a very long conversation to that, but just to keep it at a high level for today's discussion. So the investment test is really kind of the comparison of the registrant's investment in the acquiree, so that acquired business, uh, to the aggregate worldwide market value of the registrant's voting and non-voting common equity. Keep in mind, if the company isn't yet publicly traded and Rule 305 is maybe being applied as part of purposes of preparing kind of the registration statement, uh, the denominator that would be used for that test would then just be the company's total assets. Uh, the next test is the asset test and sounds kind of exactly what it is. Uh, it's the comparison of the acquiree's total assets or portion of the total assets acquired uh, to the company's total assets after, uh, before the effects of that acquisition. And then the last one is the income test. And this one really is kind of bifurcated into two different components that you kind of think through. Um, so you generally take the lower of the two. So the first one is the income component. And the other one is the revenue component. So the income component, you compare the absolute values of the acquiree's pre-tax income or loss with the company's pre-tax income or loss, kind of straightforward there. And then for the revenue component, you know, comparing acquiree's revenues to the company's revenues. Okay. So Jana, coming back over to you. So after a company computes the three tests, they take the highest of the three. Mm -hmm. How do they ultimately determine the number of financial statement periods that are required? Yeah, so this part's pretty straightforward, luckily. So if the highest of the three tests is less than 20%, then the acquisition is not considered significant. And just as a reminder, Rule 305 is applicable to significant business acquisition. So when the highest of the three tests is less than 20%, basically Rule 305 is not applicable. Um, if the highest of the three tests is between 20% and 40%, then you have to pre prepare um, one annual period and one interim period. So the most recent year-to-date interim period. Um, and then if the highest of the three tests is greater than 40%, which is sort of the, the highest threshold and the most significant, um, then it's two, two comparative annual periods and two comparative interim periods. Um, and it's worth mentioning that these, thresh these thresholds were amended by the SEC in um, May of 2020. And as a result of the amendments, the, the maximum number of annual periods were required was actually reduced from three to two years, so that was sort of a rare and very welcome scenario where the SEC was actually lightening the financial reporting burden of registrants. Okay, so Jana, to recap, we've discovered how to assess whether the acquiree meets the SEC definition of a business and, if it does, how to measure the significance of the acquisition. Now the question is, how is the acquiree financial statement information provided to the SEC? Well, the most straightforward scenario is when you have a current SEC registrant that has consummated a significant business acquisition. Um, that registrant must file a Form 8K within four business days of the acquisition to disclose that the transaction has been completed. Um, but then the, the registrant actually has a grace period of 71 days after that to file an, an amended Form 8K that actually includes the acquiree's um, the financial information required for the acquiry. Um, if uh, in, a, in a different scenario, if a current SEC registrant is filing a registration statement 
or a combined proxy statement in a non-IPO scenario, the reporting requirements depend on when or how recently that acquisition occurred. If the acquisition occurred um, 75 days or more before the registration statement is filed or declared effective, then generally the acquiree financial statements are required to be included in that registration statement unless um, that registrant's audited financial statements are already reflective of the operating results of the acquiree. Now, if the if the business acquisition was, was recently consummated, so less than 75 days before the registration statement is filed or declared effective, then the reporting requirement just depends on the significance of the acquired business. This is sort of a nuance where the, the thresholds we talked about before are slightly different. So in this particular scenario, you look to consider whether or not the acquisition is greater than 50% significance to the acquirer. Um, if it's less than 50% significance and if the uh, if the acquisition occurred less than 75 days ago, then you don't need to, there's not the financial reporting burden of including the, the information. But if, um, if it's greater than 50% significance, it does have to be included. Lots of nuances, right? Yes. They have <laughs> lots of different days and percentages and thresholds. So like, you know, it is a complex thing to navigate that, you know, companies need to be thinking about, especially if they're looking to become public or they're a public registrant and acquire a business. It's just making sure that, you know, they're they're following the rule closely. Yeah. So so those are certainly the most common scenarios. I'll just mention there are specific nuances related to to form S4 filings, which would typically be a, a SPAC transaction. Um, also IPO transactions, more more traditional IPOs. And then um also, if you have multiple acquisitions in a in a given period, um, there there are some aggregation considerations to con- to consider. Uh, and if you know if they have multiple individual individually insignificant acquisitions, whether or not those are significant in the aggregate. Great, thanks, Jana. Adam, you know I recall in the introduction that you mentioned Rule three hundred five is applicable to significant acquired businesses as well as significant to be acquired businesses. Can you circle back on that? How does that, how does one discern if a business qualifies as a quote to be acquired business? Yeah, it's a it's a good good question. Uh, good catch by you. Um, <laughs> so uh, to be acquired business is. You'll often hear this referred to as a probable business acquisition. And so, I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like, right? It's the case where there is a transaction potentially in progress that has not yet been closed and has the business has not actually been acquired, but um, where the like closing of that acquisition is deemed probable. So obviously that's going to introduce some judgment um, on behalf of registrants when they're trying to decipher whether or not a business qualifies as that to be acquired. Okay. And Adam, does the SEC provide any guidance on what is considered a probable acquisition or is that just wishful thinking? Yeah, they don't get into prescriptive guidance. So if you're looking for kind of a black and white answer here, uh, you won't find it. But this is also true for just accounting in general when you have the word probable and things like that. Um, It obviously introduces a level of responsibility that the registrant needs to think through their own facts and circumstances. Everyone's favorite fra- like phrase in accounting is facts and circumstances based <laughs> um, to really come to the answer on this. So 
you know, a rule of thumb is just kind of like overarching premise you want to think about is whether or not the registrant's financial statements alone would not provide investors with adequate financial information to make an investment decision by not providing that information for the to be acquired uh, significant business. There are some factors that are used in practice to kind of help, you know, guide, I guess, registrants on whether or not they've got a probable acquisition here. And so things you think about is whether or not there's been an executed letter of intent, whether there's you know been assigned definitive merger agreements, you know, have you obtained the required approvals for the transaction, whether that's the board or maybe it even goes to a shareholder vote. Mm-hmm. Um, have you publicly announced or put out press releases related to the transaction? So those types of indicators could kind of suggest that, you know, it's probably probably probable. Um, it's it's likely that the uh, transaction would qualify as a probable business um, acquisition. And so then you would need to think through whether or not it's significant. So getting into that a bit, so a registrant is not required to file financial statements of a probable, a significant probable business acquisition on Form 8K, but the financial statements of a significant probable business acquisition must be included in a registration statement or a proxy statement if that probable acquisition exceeds another significance threshold. And in this case, it's a 50% threshold. So a little bit higher bar there um, that you, that would kick you into having to provide that information and for those pi- types of filings, but uh, just something to keep in mind. Yeah. Jana, are there any other factors that we need to be considered in applying Rule 305? Anything else that we're leaving out? Yeah, it's definitely worth mentioning that the acquiree financial statements have to adhere to the form and content requirements of Reg SX and U.S. GAAP. So sort of have a positive and a negative here. On the positive side, U.S. GAAP disclosure requirements that are only applicable to public companies. So think segment reporting disclosures and EPS disclosures. Um, those don't have to be provided so long as the acquiree is not actually already a public company. Um, but on the kind of negative side or additional effort required, um, the U.S. GAAP definition of a public business entity does apply. Um, acquiree financial statements that are included in an SEC filing pursuant to Rule 305, like we're talking about, do actually meet that U.S. GAAP definition of a public business entity. So if the acquiree had any private company accounting alternatives that were previously elected, those would unfortunately need to be unwound. Um, any practical expedients applied that are only available to non-public business entities, those would also have to be unwound. And then the other sort of um, thing to, negative or thing to be thinking about is also accounting standard adoption dates. So some of those have to be adopted sooner than expected as well. Okay. And Jana, we've talked on previous podcasts around emerging growth companies and that typically there's some sort of accommodations that are provided on new gap adoptions. Does that apply to acquiree financial statements required under Rule 305 here? Unfortunately, no. Uh, EGC adoption date accommodations are not applicable to Rule 305 acquiree financial information. However, the FASB does provide some relief for some of the larger accounting standard updates that require a lot more effort. Um, by providing a two-bucket effective date approach, one for SEC filers and non-SEC filers. So, uh, you know, think about standards like the new revenue recognition standard, leases, credit losses. Uh, financial statements provided under Rule 305 fall into that second ad- bucket adoption date. So the so it's a later date that can be used in those circumstances. Um, but but essentially, just on the form and content and conformity situation here, kind of what we're discussing, is probably needless to say, but this can certainly become a longer pole in the tent type of item that requires 
a lot of effort when you're, um, you know, you've previously had a very private acquiree and now there's a bunch of new uh, rules and regulations to consider applying. So it's just worth kind of going through the analysis as soon as possible and thinking about the, the level of effort. Okay. Well, and Adam, I presume the acquiree financial statements are audited. What do those requirements look like? And would a PCAOB audit be necessary since the acquiree is being acquired by a registrant? Uh, so good question. Uh, so the short answer, well, short answer is yes, they have to be audited. <laughs> no surprise there uh, for an SEC filing. Um, but the answer to whether or not they have to be audited under PCAOB standards uh, is no. So acquiry financial statements that are provided under Rule 305 uh, can be audited under AICPA standards, uh, which is good because a lot of times uh, those acquired businesses may have had historical audits already performed under AICPA standards if they were a non-public company. But a PCAOB audit could be required in certain circumstances. So. We've mentioned very lightly here, like, you know, SPAC transactions, there could be cases there where the target company that's acquired in that transaction actually might require a PCAOB audit. Um, so really kind of nuanced stuff there, but in general, no, it's, you know, an AICPA uh, kind of audit for your uh, significant acquired businesses is sufficient. Okay. Adam, Jenner, we've covered a lot of information today, and obviously there's a lot of complexities here and nuances that any individual need to keep in mind when um, broaching 305. Adam, anything else that you want to add before we sign off? Yeah, I guess the only other thing I would add here, so we, we obviously focus on rule 305, which is around kind of acquired and to be acquired businesses, but there are a couple other rules out there that sound very similar. Um, so there's actually a rule called rule 309, which more or less applies to kind of equity method investments. So the rule itself will say, separate financial statements of subsidiaries that are not consolidated and 50% or less is owned. So in essence, an equity method investment. And then there's also a specific rule uh, related to real estate uh, operations. So rule 314, and they have their own set of requirements as far as evaluating, again, like significance of those um, of those transactions or those investments uh, to, you know, discern whether or not you also might have to provide additional filings for those, uh, for those transactions or, or operations. Okay. And Jana, anything else? Yeah, I would just mention pro formas. Um, we certainly don't have time to get into all, all the pro forma nuances and requirements here, but, um, if a registrant has completed a significant business acquisition, uh, obviously we've, we've talked about the rule 305 financial statements that are required, but the registrant also has to consider pro forma financial information and whether it's necessary to reflect the, the impact of the significant business acquisition to their historical results. Okay. Well, Adam, Jana, thank you so much for your time. Obviously, a lot of great information we covered here around navigating acquisitions and what Rule 305 actually entails. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us again for another episode of Accounting Matters, powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.